Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. The fruit glistens, flush red, and the girls watch, riveted as the tortoise rips into the rind, its alien face dripping with juice. This program features the work of 2016 writer Kirsten Sundberg Lundstrom. Curator Karen Finneyfrock spoke with her in an interview. So, Kirsten, your project for Jack Straw is a collection of stories focused on narratives of disaster. Yes. Tell me about narratives of disaster. So, at this point, the collection is coming together rather piecemeal, and each story in itself looks at disaster from a different angle. So, a couple of the disasters the stories center on are personal disasters, uh, a divorce of parents. In another story, A woman adopts a little boy who turns out to be a child she hasn't really bargained for in many ways, and their relationship becomes its own disaster, as does her budding love for this child who is difficult. So I'm curious about disaster in its many forms, and I think that curiosity about disaster has come out of a kind of terror, I think, in my own life, that presented itself to me more or less when I had children. I suddenly, upon becoming a mother, felt that the world was so much less safe than I thought it had been. And I felt like I saw disaster everywhere. I went through a particular period when my son was an infant at which I was so worried about things that had never worried me before, things I had no control over, like will climate change mean my son never sees old age? (laughs) And will we, driving down the street to the grocery store, be hit in a car accident and killed? Do you think writing helped affect the fear or lessen it? I think, actually, I had to wait for the fear to die down before I could write about it. And that's—I find that to be true often for me as a writer, that I have to have some distance from a thing— or an emotion or an experience to be able to process it on the page. So this is from an older story that would be part of the collection I'm working on. Um, And it was published, actually, by Willow Springs a couple of years ago. It's called The Remainder Salvage. And I'll just read the first couple paragraphs. Nils scoops away the snow carefully at first with a trench shovel, then desperately, finally getting down on his knees and scraping with his hands at the thick stratum of ice when he believes he's found another body. Twice what he has uncovered has been not a body, but someone's luggage, the olive-green duffel of a soldier the first time, and now, an hour or maybe two hours later, time has become hard to measure out here in the dark and the cold a lady's brocade valise. He sits back on his heels and breathes the rimy air in ragged gasps. The fabric of the bag was so certainly a woman's overcoat an instant ago, the round shape of it her curved back. He kicks at the bag with the toe of his boot and pulls off his gloves. 
It is March, but there is no sign of spring here. Snow is still falling, and Nils's fingers are stiff with the freezing temperature. He works at the buckles, and the bag opens. When he shines the beam of his lantern inside, he sees the cream-colored satin of a woman's underslip, a pair of gold-rimmed reading glasses in a soft drawstring pouch, a silver compact with a clamshell design on its case and a mirror inside, the glass clean and unbroken. He snaps shut the clasp on the compact and drops it into his pants pocket, tosses the bag aside, and pulls on his gloves again to keep digging. Here and there, flares poked into the snow fizz and hiss, their sulfuric halos trembling and bright against the white drifts. In the odd, low light, the wreckage of the avalanche seems imagined, too strange and awful to be real. That story is based on an actual historical event, the Wellington Avalanche that happened in 1910 in Tai, Washington. And in that disaster, uh, an avalanche overwhelmed a train full of passengers as well as a, a railroad town in the Cascade Mountains. And so the disaster in that story is external but also internal as the narrator or the central character examines his life in the midst of digging out bodies from the snow. I'm curious, the fears that you mentioned having were different from the disasters that you mentioned writing about, for example, the Wellington avalanche. What type of research did you do into the avalanche, and why do you think you chose the avalanche, even though you mentioned fears like global warming? The avalanche was something that fell into my lap in some ways. Uh, My husband's grandparents were going through their things in order to move out of the house they'd lived in for 60 years. And a newspaper clipping that they found made its way to me. And it was about my husband's great-grandfather processing the bodies that came out of the avalanche and into Wenatchee. And I was completely fascinated by this. I had I've grown up in Washington, and I had never heard about this avalanche. And it was the biggest train disaster, as, as far as I know, in American history. And so... I was a little stunned that I had never heard about it and that I had been on the road where this avalanche had buried people many, many times. And so the the closeness of that, I think, struck me and struck that particular proclivity for fear that I felt at that time, uh, the sense that even if you aren't in the midst of a disaster, one is always very close. And so the story stuck with me. And... I think I held on to the newspaper clipping for probably five or six years before I started writing about it. And I did do a little research, but I guess I would say I write before I research, and then I research after having drafted. You've mentioned your process as a writer. I'd love to know more. Where do the stories come from, and how do they develop? The answer is different for every story. I think many of them begin with something that feels personal. So the story about the woman, for instance, that I mentioned earlier, who adopts a young boy and then feels as if she's in over her head with him or has ended up with more than she bargained for as a parent, came out of my reality as a parent that I think is common to all parents, that uh, in some way you are always in over your head. And certainly there were moments for me parenting young children when I felt that I didn't know what my children would be. 
Uh, they would have tantrums that surprised me or emotions that felt to me not like things I knew in myself. And so that made them feel like a little bit foreign and a little bit scary. And so out of that recognition and that little bit of my own maternal worry came this story about a woman who has a very different situation than my own, but her fear was also my fear. And again, in that story, I ended up doing research after drafting because I am not an adoptive parent and I didn't know much about the adoptive process. And so I ended up interviewing a family who had adopted two children to learn a little bit more about what that in practice might look like. And then those details made their way into the revision. So the genre you write in primarily, I believe, is short stories. Yes. Can you tell me why you love the short story genre? Yeah, I, I feel that short stories are perfect. <laughs> I'm not mine, but I think the, the form itself has the capability for perfection. And I certainly have read short stories that I feel are perfect. And when I'm reading these, there's a sense of complete delight in the beauty of control that the story offers, that the writer can craft something very meticulously, and the story, if it's done well, can continue to unfold for you as a reader as you read it. What do you think makes a reader care about a story? I would come back to that delight in the unfolding. Stories for me that don't work as well, even if they're maybe enjoyable or entertaining, stories that don't last for me in a deep way are ones that do not reveal anything new after a first read. Stories that don't linger. I, I don't want to read or write a story that doesn't stick with me after I finished reading it. Alice Monroe has that great quote that people talk about all the time about a story being like a house and you come in the front door and you can meander around and then leave and come back in a different way and see it new, but be welcomed back in. And I love that because I think that is my experience as a reader of short stories, good short stories. There's always a new window to look through. Now we'll hear a selection from Kirsten's live reading. I'm going to read to you two sections from what's turning out to be a very long short story that I've been writing as part of the Jack Straw program. And I think the only bit you need to know about this is that the title, which is Endlings, is a term that means the last of a species before the species goes extinct. So these are the first two sections of endlings. Dr. Katya Vidovic stands outside the hospital courtyard gate, watching the reptile man exercise his pets. He has come to entertain the girls, who are prone to deviance when left unsupervised. They've been known to pull out their hair by the fistful, to tattoo their inner arms and thighs with the needles of safety pins, to slip into the ward's bathroom and quietly vomit the contents of their last meal. Now, however, they sit like angels, their angular bodies arranged just so on the courtyard grass, their spindle-fingered hands folded in their laps as the leash tortoise lumbers forward before them and the copperhead looks on, languid and bored from its empty glass terrarium. 
Katja has seen this routine before, but still, there is something captivating about it. Something fascinatingly grotesque about the bodies of the animals the man brings to display. The vaguely indecent projection of the tortoise's long neck and the bulbous head from its shell. The constant flickering whisper of the copperhead's tongue. Last year, the man, who himself is a small and balding curiosity of a person, brought a bearded dragon, its body spined in tiny teeth. Another year, a frilled lizard with a headdress like a mythological monster. These are animals built for other worlds, their bodies armed for hardships that they, in their captivity, will never see. They are to be pitied, Katja always thinks. They are not living the life for which they were meant. From her place outside the gate, she looks on as the man tours the tortoise between the rows of girls. Prim-faced Natalie Fletcher, 11 years old, is bold enough to reach out and stroke the knobbly shell. 13-year-old Christina Berg titters. The animal trundles past them all, indifferent, awkward on the soft turf of the lawn, its front legs bent like inverted knees. As it moves, the reptile man speaks to it in a coo, nudges it around the group of girls and back into its crate, where he rewards it with half a watermelon. The fruit glistens, flush red, and the girls watch, riveted as the tortoise rips into the rind, its alien face dripping with juice. To close the show, the man turns to the snake. From beneath a drape, he produces a cage, and from the cage, a live mouse. A ripple of interest stirs the girls who sit up straighter, crane to see. In the wild, the man says, copperheads are incredibly efficient eaters. They require as few as one or two meals per month. He lifts the terrarium lid and drops the white ball of fur inside. The girls go silent. The snake raises its head. Katya knows what's coming. A methodical, if artificial, hunt. A strike. A laborious but bloodless swallow. Gruesome little drama. The girls, however, lap it up. This is hunger as theater. Eating as a feat of will. It makes sense to them, these girls. These girls, like Katya, may find it disturbing, but they understand it. Scanning them now, she sees the usual responses. Rebecca Silver is covering her eyes. Alina Colbert is hugging her knees to her chest. And near the back, the pair of twins admitted just this morning, nine years old and the youngest patients Katya's ever had, are sitting side by side, grimacing. Only Simone Hunter seems to look on without revulsion. Simone Hunter, 12, admitted last week, malnourished, amenorrheic, tachycardic, five foot four and 82 pounds. Katja thinks over the girl's chart, straining to pull up her mental register of the psychiatrist's notes. She recalls just one word scrawled in her colleague's soft hand on the page's margin, delusions. Such an uncharacteristic assessment of one of these girls. These girls are often perfectionists, narcissists, they are usually anxious and depressed, but beyond a distorted vision of their own bodies, they are typically clear-sighted. It's a strong word from Dr. Moore, and what the girl could have said in session to warrant it 
Katya cannot imagine. On the lawn, applause erupts. The show is over. The mouse is vanished. The reptile man bows, begins to pack up. The girls unfold themselves from their seated positions and stand to file back into the hospital. They will take the elevator up to the ward. Climbing five flights of stairs is too much physical exertion for these girls, though surely at least one of them will suggest it. Come, Katya says, and she opens the gate. She is so accustomed to them, sometimes she forgets how frail they are. But she sees it now as they float past her, their hollow cheeks still pinked with the excitement of the show, their long arms downed in the fine hair of their starvation, their pronounced scapulas like rigid wings poking up from beneath the fabric of their shirts. They are an airy of girls, or maybe a quiver. When Simone Hunter passes, Katya stops her. Did you enjoy it, she asks, the show? The girl hesitates. She has a broad moon of a face, even as thin as she is, and dark hooded eyes. She looks Katya up and down, her expression hard. Who doesn't enjoy a spectacle, she says. She smiles then, polite, and Katya dismisses her to follow the rest of the girls inside. Before Katya took this position in Seattle, she was a medical fellow at an American program for girls with disordered eating in Boston. And before that, she was completing her medical training in Louisiana. And before that, she was a girl herself, living with her grandparents in the top floor apartment of a house in Zagreb. The house was three floors tall and painted blue. It had a steep sloped roof under which Katya's tiny bedroom was tucked. It was a cozy room, except at night, when the shadows of the street below arced up and played on the ceiling's wooden slats. The Owl's Puppet Show, her grandmother told her, though even as a young child, Katya knew this was an adult's game, an attempt to soften the nightmarish quality of the dark shapes, the fluttered silhouette of a wing, the slithered shadow of a snake that she was sure she was not mistaken in seeing. The room, and therefore the angled ceiling and the shadows on it, had once been Katya's mother's. Her grandparents had lived in the apartment since their marriage, and they had raised her mother, their only child, there. When Katya's mother died, the year Katya was eight, they took her in and gave her the bedroom and everything in it, her mother's old rag doll with the drag dress, a set of cloth-covered books in a language Katya could not read a chest full of bridal linens that her mother had never used. And it was as if time inside the apartment retracted, rolled back like a measuring tape snailing into its case. Her grandparents became younger than she'd first believed them to be, and she became an old woman in a little girl's body. This is the paradox of death for the living, Katya learned then. It both stops and accelerates time. It both reanimates the past and fossilizes the future, and everything but the observable present becomes subject to the unreliable whims of sentiment or fear. In response to this, Katya became a scientist, devoted to the world of the visible and the irrefutable. Each day after her classes let out, she walked home through Maximir Park, in the autumn, she collected specimens of fallen oak leaves to study under the desk lamp in her bedroom. 
In the winter, she noted what differentiated the snow tracks belonging to squirrels from those belonging to rats. In the spring, she liked to sit in the grass along the bank of the lake, waiting for the dark blots hovering beneath the surface to emerge and prove themselves nothing other than turtles. Once out of the water, the turtles had the amazing ability to range themselves five or six or seven at a time at near intervals along the length of a fallen tree branch, their nub feet somehow gripping the slick bark well enough to keep them from falling. How? Katya wondered. The world was wide and curious. At home, she would report whatever she had seen to her grandparents over dinner, and they would reply to these benign physical observations of the natural world with a cheerful encouragement and unwounded interest that seemed impossible for them when Katya's conversation veered toward more personal subjects, where, for instance, her missing father might be or why he had left before getting to know her, or what correlation might exist between his sudden absence and the slower kind of vanishing her mother had wished for and finally managed. There were never any answers to these questions, and so her grandparents made it clear to her when she was bold enough to speak them aloud. It was better not to ask them at all. She was 16 when the war began, and whatever she might have asked didn't matter anymore. She was sent to relatives in France for a few weeks, then a cousin in England, and eventually she made her own way to the university in the United States. During her last year of medical school, her grandmother wrote to say that her grandfather had died, a stroke. Katja had exams she couldn't miss and no money, and so she mailed her grandmother a letter of apology and did not get on a flight home. Time passed. Five years later, another letter arrived, this one from her grandmother's friend, saying that her grandmother, too, had passed. She was gone. A bad flu, pneumonia, grief. Would Katja come back now? It was winter when she got this letter, late February of 2008. In Boston, there was snow on the ground, thin, granular, dirty snow. It lay in shrinking circles around the trees and the curbs and the front stoops of the brick houses. It clung in thinning patches to the roofs and the sills and the crotches of trees. It made the city hard and tight, black and white. Katya did not love this place as she had loved the blue house and the park and the country of her childhood. But what did that matter really? She had not been a child for a long time. She had lived half her life elsewhere. And what would be left to her there now that she was the last of her family? the last of a vanishing line. She would be a foreigner now, even at home. She wrote back to her grandmother's friend, declining the invitation. I have adapted to my life here, she wrote. Condolences. She slicked her tongue along the envelope's bitter edge, sealing the matter shut. Thank you. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2016 curator of this program is Karen Finneyfrock. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Daniel Gunther and Levi Fuller. Recording engineers are Steve DeTori, Daniel Gunther, Mo Preventure, and Tom Stiles. 
Narrator is Alyssa Keene. And executive director of Jack Straw Cultural Center is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by the Seattle Jazz Composers Ensemble, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>